when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the latest in the Conservative Party leadership contest, what Matt Hancock has been saying to the FT, where Michael Gove is, and why Boris Johnson has yet to enter the race. Plus, we'll be looking ahead to Donald Trump's state visit to the UK and how Theresa May is going to navigate it as a lame duck prime minister. I'm delighted to be joined by our columnist Robert Shrimsley, Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green, Whitehall Editor James Blitz and Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator Gideon Rackman. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. We also do quite like a positive review. So the Tory leadership contest has yet to formally begin, yet all the candidates are going. And there's a lot of them. There are now 11 candidates in the race to succeed Theresa May when she steps down as party leader on June the 7th. There are five main candidates, but a lot of other people have thrown their hats into the ring, possibly just to try and get themselves a better job in the next government if they haven't got a particular chance of making it into Downing Street. So, Robert Shumsey, let's begin with the top of the race and where all those people are. The most obvious obvious thing is that the front runner in this, Boris Johnson, still has not declared that he is formally running to be Prime Minister, even though we've seen more polls this week that show he is the favourite person amongst the Conservative Party's grassroots. And at this stage, it still looks like it's his to lose. Yes, I think that's right. And I think he's engaged in a bit of expectation management. If you look at the polls and the names of people declared for the various candidates, as you say, there are a handful of front runners all around between the 20 to 29 mark, Jeremy Hunt, Boris Johnson, Dominic Raab and so on. What's interesting, I think, is that some of them are working very hard. And Boris Johnson, in terms of visibility, is not working hard at all. He's having his private meetings. He's talking to MPs. He's working on the people who are going to vote in this first part of the contest. And I think he is deliberately deflating the level of support he's got at the moment. He's being advised, at least unofficially, by Linton Crosby. I think there is an expectation management game going on here, whereby they want people to think, well, you know, maybe he's only got 40 or 50, maybe it could be up for grabs. And actually, he's got quite a lot more in the bag, is my hunch. And so I think it absolutely is Boris Johnson's to lose. And I think it's going to be very difficult for those people who want to try and keep him off the top two going to the members. The key thing for Boris, um, Robert, is that he doesn't want to be seen as the front runner because that's quite a dangerous place to be in this race because, as we've seen this week, a lot of candidates will go and attack them for being in that position. He doesn't want to be seen as the front runner, but he is the front runner. I think he's probably ambivalent about this status. On the one hand, he doesn't want to be the target for everybody else. On the other hand, if you can absolutely streak ahead, then it becomes a fight for second place. And if he can really establish himself in the first ballot of MPs, then everyone will turn their mind to being his opponent and not fighting him anymore. Now, Miranda Green, this is where I think a lot of the Conservative Party are looking now. Either if you're on side with Boris Johnson, 
fine. But then it's the question is who is going to be the candidate to beat him? Because this whole thing will start whittled down when Parliament returns and the 1922 committee starts to run the rounds to choose the final two candidates. The Stop Boris candidate was thought to be some by Jeremy Hunt had a lot of support. But he made these comments about a no-deal Brexit and he's really flip-flopped on this issue and seems to be hemorrhaging MPs and momentum. He does. He's tried to keep both wings of the parliamentary party happy, which, as we've seen during the unhappy premiership of Mrs May, is quite a difficult thing to pull off. And also, I think he sort of failed to say anything memorable on those dual positions, whereas Matt Hancock, the health secretary, gave an interview to our paper this week in which he really decided to take on Boris Johnson, you know, with this decision to say where Boris said F business, I say F, F business, i.e. the Conservative Party's disastrous movement away from being the party of enterprise, the party of the economy, has to be reversed. And that's a really important message to get across. So I think Hunt's kind of ambivalence on Brexit has been sort of eclipsed by Hancock, which is why Hancock's doing quite well. I do think we'd be mad not to talk about the Michael Gove factor, though, because this question of who can actually stop Boris, Michael Gove is obviously the other person on that Leave campaign platform the morning after the referendum went their way, at the time looking slightly disappointed to have won. But, you know, in terms of actually trying to deliver something without wrecking the economy and trying to avoid no deal while keeping the Tory grassroots on side, I would say goes in a really quite strong position there. And, of course, because of his time at the Agriculture Department, He knows the implications of no deal. And if it comes to a debate and he's one of the front-runner candidates, I think in a face-off with some of the more hardline Brexiters, he'd be able to wipe the floor with them and might even bring over very hardline Brexiter grassroots members. And I think, you know, it's very early days in this race, Robert, but if you were to have a gut feeling now, if things continue as they are, it would end up Boris versus Gove again, which is really where we were in 2016. And what Michael Gove seems to have going for him is he's an acceptable Brexiter if you're a Remainer. So if you're an MP, one person who comes to mind is Tom Tugendhat, who's the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. He's a Remainer, but he feels you've got to have a Brexiter leading the party. And he wrote this in an op-ed in the Daily Telegraph. So I think that's absolutely right. And I do think Michael Gove is an extremely interesting figure in this because what might call the May loyalists, the payroll vote, the moderates, the remainers have got a big decision to make, which is do they get behind someone who actually is a personification of what they believe, a Matt Hancock, maybe even a Rory Stewart, who's having a wonderful campaign, or do they get behind a Brexit they think they can do business with? And that's the fundamental question. I have to say, my own gut feeling is I'm not going to have a gut feeling until I've seen the votes in the first ballot, because I think it is very hard to call this. And one of the things to bear in mind about Tory leadership contest is that what the media sees is not really the real contest. The real contest is going on very quietly among 300 people who already all know each other and probably have formed quite strong gut views about who they're going to support. And one of the reasons why Boris Johnson's position so far is interesting because he's working the current electorate and the current electorate is only 300 people. You only need to have a strong media strategy and a strong presence outside of those 300 if you're trying to persuade them there's something more to you than they already thought, which is again why Rory Stewart's campaign is very interesting. He's got very little visible support. He's not seen at the moment as being a strong candidate. He's only got a couple of backers, I think. But he's running this extraordinarily interesting social media campaign, which people are warming to and they're liking him and they're thinking he's got a bit of authenticity. Is there something more there? I think he's still very much an outsider. But that kind of strategy is quite clever if you're trying to 
elbow your way into a contest among big beasts. Well, can I say on the Rory Stewart point, which has been Miranda, one of the kind of joyful things of this contest, seeing him just going out and talking to people. And it's that vital thing of authenticity he's got that a lot of people have said Theresa May lacked and a lot of other considered politicians lacked. But there are some MPs who just think, what is he up to? You know, I got a text from one MP said, you know, I think you're overestimating how impressed Tory MPs are with his weird tour. He isn't bothering with MPs. He doesn't really understand where the party is at the moment. So it's good publicity for him and for his future talking about his time where he smoked opium at a wedding when he was walking across the Middle Isn't East. everyone? <laughs> but it's not really serious. No one thinks, not even Rory, he's going to be the next Prime Minister. Well, it's interesting you should say it's not serious because one of his main contentions mm. is that politics has become very unserious and he wants to call out, for example, the desire to refuse to compromise on Brexit as an unserious attitude. And of course, he was more keen on Theresa May's compromise Brexit deal than she was herself and did an energetic job trying to sell it. I think you're right about the campaign. But of course, you can't forget that in this hilariously crowded field, you know, 11 or 12 so far, maybe even more if Penny Mordaunt, who hasn't yet declared, decides to jump on board as well. You've got a lot of people who are also not manoeuvring for the leadership of the party, but they want to be in the next cabinet. So Rory Stewart, for example, has been in the cabinet for about two and a half minutes, but he wants to stay there. So he wants to catch the eye of whoever does become leader and become a sort of symbol of something in the next administration. And I think that's true as well, Robert, for people like Kit Malthouse, the housing minister, James Cleverley, the Brexit minister, all these candidates who are lesser known who have declared because they want to just make sure they're going to get a better job by showing some support. But they do actually have to get some MPs on their side at some point. Because if they run and get less than, say, five MPs backing them, then they're just going to look a bit silly. I think that that's absolutely right. And I think you and Miranda are both right. It's clearly about positioning for the next cabinet among some people, although one should never underestimate the self-belief that individual <laughs> politicians have in themselves. But I, I think some of these candidacies are clearly silly. They're not going to get anywhere. And one has to wonder why they are dragging out this exercise. I think what they hope is if you are one of the tail enders, as it were, in this contest and you are able to get five, six, seven votes, you can actually deliver those votes to the lead candidate of your choice and make a difference and trade it. It's not always the case that you can deliver them, but I think that is part of the process. And Miranda, on the timetable of how this thing is going to pan out, so Parliament comes back next week and we've obviously got the Trump state visit, as we'll talk about later. But the key thing is nominations open next Friday. That's when Theresa May resigns as Conservative Party leader and then they will begin the voting process. And really by the end of June, we will know who those final two are. Then it goes out to the membership. And I guess that's when the race really blows out into the open. Well, and you get dramatic changes often between those stages of the voting. You get quite interesting things happen during those votes, the runoffs, where the MPs are voting on who will go forward as the two candidates to the party membership. And of course, last time you ended up with Andrea Leadsom and May, and Leadsom decided to just throw in the towel, so it never went to the membership. I think Robert's right. These kind of deals that are being done off the corridors of Westminster are partly to do with, well, if I don't come in the top three or four, then I'll donate my backers to your camp, etc. And as that goes on, it will change the nature of the contest. But I think there might also be some surprises in there. I think this question of whether they can, as it were, stop Boris, it's very interesting, this, because 
These leadership contests can be very, very unpredictable. Of course, look what happened with the Labour Party. Jeremy Corbyn's name was on the ballot paper too, in the phrase of the time, make sure there was a genuine debate between wings of the party. Somebody might be on there for tactical reasons, but you could actually see them coming through and winning. And I know that every single rule of politics has been rewritten in the last few years, but it's still worth remembering that the front runner in Tory leadership contests has never made it before. So you don't really know. He might not be a shoo-in. Well, I think the one meta story here, apart from who wins, for the Conservative Remainers, for the Conservative Moderates, they have this important decision as to who they back. They also have a decision about who they want to be in the new Conservative Party under the regime of whoever it is, Boris Johnson or Dominic Raab. They've got to decide, do we want to be a bit like the ERG were under Theresa May? Do we want to say, we stand for this, we stand against no deal, and you cannot get past us, and if you try to go round us, we will create the havoc for you that your lot created for Theresa May. We cannot be ignored. I think that's a fundamental question for those Conservatives. And one thing we also found out this week, Miranda, is there are going to be TV debates in all this. Emily Maitlis in the middle of June is going to have this... Is she not running? She's not running, I don't think. But again, she may still declare where you have all <laughs> the candidates on this podium. And that one, I think, is particularly difficult for Mr Johnson because in that instance, all the other candidates will gang up probably on Boris about his, you know, perceived flaws and all the rest of it. And you can see that becoming a bit of a mess. But then it's going to go down to a question time special, which is the final two. And then the Andrew Neil interviews, which I think will be very interesting to see how people like Boris, who are not as good on details, do get picked up on that. So in that first one, apart from how do they fit everybody onto a stage and how on earth do you manage 11 or 12 Wembley people? Arena again, yeah. just like the referendum. Exactly. It will be important to remember the point that Robert's made, that actually the real audience is the MPs. So they'll be partly looking at how people are as performers, you know, how they go over. And then when you get to the sort of second round, this question time panel, I think that might be a difficult one for Boris Johnson if they do decide to gang up on him. But they may decide that that's actually not a good idea because in leadership contests as well, you've got to remember that if you are going to damage your future party leader, you are damaging your party's chances. So it's a very short-term gain to slag them off properly on television and use all the things against them that you know you could use against them. It's pretty dangerous. It can alienate the selectorate, the Tory party members themselves, and then you can end up damaging your brand by damaging your future leader. I have to say, my heart sank when I heard the notion that there will be a TV debate for the first round with, as you say, 10 or 11. I mean, I do this for a living and I don't Mine left, Robert. Well, are you standing? I do this for a living and I don't want to watch this programme. Just see them all sitting around going, actually, I agree with Kit or whatever. It's going to be absolutely awful. And you have to sit there and think, look, why am I bothering to watch this show? Nine of you won't even be here in two weeks' time. I can wait for the final two. It's one of those things that we do, presumably because Game of Thrones has finished. Why are we doing this? I have no idea. Well, I'm sure Grateful Nation will be looking forward to watching that. Managed to circle back on where all the cannons are. We've talked about Mr Johnson. We've talked about where Mr Gove is. We've talked about Mr Hancock and his comments to the FT. What we haven't talked about is Dominic Raab, who's been giving a series of interviews this week, notably one in The Spectator, where he outlined why he doesn't see himself as a feminist and that has caused some waves as you might expect on Twitter and social media but again it probably doesn't matter but his framing is quite interesting. Well he's unapologetic about his worldview 
some people in the Conservative Party will think that that's a strength because they share it. The problem is you are alienating a whole bunch of people if you don't try and engage with the way that the world is changing around you. So I do think that's a potential problem for him as the Tories decide who could get them elected at a general election. That's the problem. Even if they agree with him, his decision to not sort of discuss it and not admit that he might have spoken out of turn, I think, could be a problem. I think more of a problem for Dominic Raab, to be honest, is his behaviour when he was Brexit secretary, because he is saying various things about his record and his attempts to broker a compromise on the Northern Ireland backstop, which are being really seriously disputed by other people who know what went on during that period. So I think the problem for him is also to do with him overplaying his hand as somebody who tried but failed not through his own fault on Brexit. I think the issue with the Dominic Raab, you know, the obnoxious bigots line about feminists is that what Conservative leaders have to be able to do is get rid of their negatives. You know, we don't expect any of the Conservative Party candidates to become leading lights in the feminist movement. That's not who they are. But they've got to look like they're not antagonistic to it. In the same way that David Cameron talked up what the Conservative Party was going to do for the National Health Service, it wasn't that if you really love the NHS, you were about to vote Conservative on the back of it, but you had to shade the negative. And the Conservative Party... It has to be conservative still, but it's got to look modern. It's got to look relevant. It's got to look like it's not at war with large chunks of the voters whose support it's going to need in the end. And therefore, I think picking these culture war fights and being unapologetic about them will work in terms of getting yourself elected conservative leader, perhaps. But it's going to damage you in the long run. And they have to be very careful about the hostages to fortune they leave when they get to a general election that they have created in their efforts to win the leadership. I thought that the tweet by Team Sads, which is the campaign for the Home Secretary's leadership bid, which tweeted, this is what a feminist looked like, so the picture of the cartoon character Morph, kind of showed that that is the image they're trying to put across. And Mims Davis, a Conservative MP, who's one of his supporters, said on an interview this week, the reason I'm backing Mr Javid is because he is comfortable with modern Britain. Finally, Miranda, this surprise person, which, as Robert has alluded to, a lot of people are putting their hat into the ring here. Philip Hammond popped up on the radio this week and hinted, much to the surprise of everyone possibly, including Philip Hammond, that if he wasn't happy with the Brexit positioning of the candidate, he would think about it himself. But he also talked about the chance of a second referendum. And I think the two questions that are really going to come and dominate each of the candidates are, will you have a general election and will you have a second referendum? Because really, to try and solve Brexit, it's probably going to need one of those things. I think you're quite right on that. And presumably every leadership candidate is promising most of the Tory MPs who are coming to sound them out that they won't hold either. I think the real question is which of those commitments not to hold a general election and not to hold a second referendum they're willing to go back on, essentially, because a second referendum might become inevitable, however much some people on both sides of the argument don't want to have it. I think it is really significant that Hammond said, if nobody's prepared to stand for a reasonable point of view on Brexit, one that doesn't wreck the economy, I may be forced to put myself forward. Because again, it's this test of, is the Conservative Party still going to be able to claim that mantle of being the party of business and the party of the economy? And he's obviously disgusted with his colleagues that they've lost it for him. I think Philip Hammond has the potential to be quite a dangerous wrecker in this campaign, not because I think he will stand in the end, because I think think if if he thought he had a chance, he'd have stood already. But what he can do is 
play the role of viciously keeping everybody honest. We've also seen him attacking those making preposterous spending pledges that they can't really justify. And I think he's going to play the role of, well, I know you said this, but actually that can't possibly work, can it? And that's a very dangerous role to have someone playing. And I think, as Miranda says, is absolutely right. They are going to face, is it a second referendum? Is it a general election? And if it's neither, how are you going to do it? And Boris Johnson is talking to MPs privately and he's saying, like, well, of course, I'm going to go to Macron and I'm, I'm going to go to Barnier. I'm going to tell them like it is and they're going to give us a better deal. And that's, you know, and even people who are minded to support him are not tremendously impressed with this. And deep down, they're going to face this choice. The new leader of the Conservative Party and assumably the next prime minister has a choice. Do I want to be the shortest serving prime minister in history by calling a general election? I'm prepared to take that risk. Or am I in the end going to have to go back to the people, however much I dislike this, in a second referendum and try and nail this? Because the one thing about a second referendum is it will either get them off the hook of having to deliver Brexit or force Parliament to accept the Brexit that they have put to the people. Next week is going to be a big time for the special relationship between the US and the UK. President Donald Trump will come to Britain for his first state visit, where he'll be welcomed at Buckingham Palace, he'll see Theresa May, and he'll pop down to Portsmouth to celebrate 75 years since the D-Day landings. But the trip comes at a very fraught time. He arrives on the Monday and Theresa May is set to resign on the Friday. Plus, there's the thorny issues of Brexit, who's going to be the next Prime Minister, and how to deal with Huawei. So Gideon Rackman, these state visits happen about once every presidency. Normally every president gets one. The Trump one is probably one of the more volatile ones in recent years, not least because Mr Trump is coming at a time in the UK where everything's up in the air and we essentially have a lame duck prime minister. Yeah, it would have been awkward anyway, because there's quite a lot of anti-Trump sentiment, particularly in London, and so they're liable to be demonstrations. I think actually maybe people have got a little bit more used to the idea of Trump as president, so although there will be demos, that perhaps isn't as big an issue. But as you point out, he arrives in the middle of this enormous political flux and crisis in the UK. Theresa May's on her way out. So any diplomatic discussions he's going to have will be basically pointless because he can discuss Huawei with her as much as he likes, but she'll be gone by the Friday. But on the other hand, I don't know whether that will really bother him because I think as far as he's concerned, he's bringing the whole family over. It's like a kind of cross between a state visit and a family holiday. I think he's very interested in the pomp and circumstance, you know, how many cannons fire off, that kind of thing will matter to him, I suspect more than the actual diplomatic details. And that's really why the president is coming, because we know he likes the grandeur, and if there's one thing the British state can do well, it is pomp and circumstance. Yeah, that's what we say to ourselves, and I think that is true. These are very well-established rituals. It's kind of hard to go wrong with Buckingham Palace and Horse Guards Parade and all of that. So, yeah, they'll do that, and they will honour him, as they have honoured the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, and many other American presidents in the past. In a way, it's striking how many presidents the Queen must have received, probably starting with Eisenhower. So it'd be quite hard to face her. This is actually the 112th leader that the Queen has welcomed on a state visit since she became Queen back in the early 50s. So James Blitz, let's just talk a bit about what's going to be involved on the visit. President Trump arrives on Monday morning where he'll be welcomed to Buckingham Palace for the sort of formal part of the visit. And as Gideon was saying, he's bringing his whole family with him, that all four of Mr Trump's eldest children are coming with their families. And I've been told the whole entourage is close to 200 people will be coming. And then there's the lunch at Buckingham Palace and then the state dinner that evening. But even the state banquet has proved quite political. And we know that Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of Labour, 
Ireland, the Liberal Democrats, Vince Cable, said they won't be attending. So even the politics of it are into the kind of officialdom part of the visit. Yes. I mean, a state visit is something which most US presidents get. And the thing about this one, though, is it's coming very early indeed in the presidency. It's coming just within two years. And as we've already said, one of the strange things about it is that although it's happening with all the pomp and ceremony, all the rest of it, it's actually a very hollow event. You have a prime minister who's effectively an interim prime minister, so there's nobody really to talk to there. And we don't know who the next person is definitely going to be. We know it could be Boris Johnson, it could be Michael Gove, but there's a hollowness there, if you like. Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the opposition, has already said that he is not going to attend the state banquet, nor is the Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko, who clearly doesn't want to see Mr Trump either. So a huge hollowness in the state. The one person who's probably top of the news at the moment politically in the UK, who is Nigel Farage, the leader of the Brexit party, who did extraordinarily well in the European elections. He certainly would love to see Mr Trump. And I suspect Mr Trump would have no problem seeing him. But the likelihood is that they won't meet either because that will just be too embarrassing. So all in all, it's going to be a very strange event. And I think the risk in this event is that there will be some very uneasy moments, some gaffes. You know, one of the problems with Mr. Trump, for example, in the past is he's really been very critical of the way Theresa May has handled Brexit. And he said very, very clearly that he thinks that he would have done it very differently. Now, if he veers off in that direction once again, when the Prime Minister is really on her last legs, that's the kind of embarrassing thing that is going to make this really a rather unpleasant experience. And also it would be seen as a kind of intervention in British politics because the central question facing the Tory party and also the country is how Trump-like to be in dealings with the US. Boris Johnson has cited Trump as a model for dealing with Europe. In other words, saying we should be much more aggressive, not play by the rules, shake things up. So if Trump were to encourage that kind of approach, he's in a sense intervening in, in British politics. And that brings us on to the second day of the visit, the Tuesday, which is the political day. And it's going to begin with a business roundtable with CEOs and C-level executives from the likes of GSK and BA Systems are going to be there to talk about trading and economic ties between the two countries, Gideon. But then Donald Trump's going to go to Downing Street where he'll be welcomed and we'll have a lunch with Theresa May and there'll be a press conference. And I guess really that is going to be the moment everyone will be watching to see whether Mr Trump says something about the Tory leadership or about about Huawei, all about the relationship between the two countries there. And this Huawei issue is going to be a big one because the last person who came to uh, the UK from the US was Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who's coming back again on this trip. Mm -hmm. And he said some very brusque things about Huawei and about the UK's approach, essentially accusing Theresa May of betraying the legacy of Margaret Thatcher by letting the Chinese state have what he sees as undue involvement. So I guess there's chance for embarrassment at that. Sure. Mrs May has attempted to strike a compromise, but it's not a compromise that the uh, Americans are happy with. She said that Huawei can get involved in the peripheral bits of the 5G network that Britain is just beginning to roll out. The Americans say, no, no, you're laying yourselves wide open to espionage. And of course, this comes in the context of a trade war that America has unleashed against China in the past month. And in, in the even broader context, that trade war is being interpreted as really an effort to block the rise of China, albeit rather belatedly. And the US expects that Britain, as its oldest ally, will essentially go along with that. The British, however, at least under May, are still trying to ride both horses. They are still in a way wedded to the previous model of globalisation, where trading with China was regarded as a good thing. 
They yearn for what they call a golden era of economic relations with China, just as they're looking for a trade deal with America. They're also looking to develop a special economic relationship with a country that's the second largest economy in the world. Philip Hammond, the Chancellor of the Exchequer and senior civil servants have all been to China recently. So the Brits will be loath to give up on that and will feel that if they cut Huawei off at the knees in response to American pressure, they will then sour their relationship with China. So they're really cool. And then, James, finally, the last day is the Wednesday, which is when Mr. Trump and Mrs. May and the Queen and Prince Charles will all head down to Portsmouth for the D-Day celebration, 75 years since the invasion of Europe. And that is going to symbolise the special relationship in a way, and this idea of the US and the UK working together. And again, a big moment for Mr. Trump to see all the military kit and that kind of thing that he will then enjoy. And I think for Mrs. May, if she gets to that point without anything unduly bad happening, she will be pretty relieved. She will be relieved. And of course, that will be a moment to remind us of not only the US and UK role at D-Day, but also, of course, of all the other empire and Commonwealth nations that took part on D-Day. One should never forget that in 1944, there were 9 million British Commonwealth and Imperial servicemen under arms. Of those, 4.5 million were non-British. They have a huge role to play in this. And One hopes that that will be stressed. But a point that one wants to make is this, I think. We've already touched on Huawei and the differences there. The real problem we have with this whole visit with Trump coming over is that on the one hand, the British are basically saying, look, one day we might need to do a free trade agreement with the US, and that's really important for us in in the post-Brexit world. And so that's what they're looking at with Trump. And that's why they want to get close and hug the US close, to use that phrase. But the trouble is that on most of the other areas of international policy, the British still are much closer to European sentiment than they are to the US. So on the scaling back of the Iran nuclear deal, there's a lot of tension between the European Union and the US over that. Over climate change, the British are still much more wedded to a European view. On the Middle East peace process, again, huge differences. And so... Although there will be lots of areas where the British do want to talk to the US, there really are an awful lot of differences underneath the surface. And that's going to be there in the background. And not least the style between Mr. Trump and Mrs. May, that when she was the first foreign leader to go to the White House, Gideon, it was so obvious they're just very, very different people. Absolutely. And she tried to make the best of it, you remember, by saying, oh, opposites attract. But in fact, that didn't really seem to be the case. I don't think they got on badly in the way that Trump and Merkel evidently do get on badly, but there was never any connection there. But I think that if Trump, or at least the people around him, are thinking strategically, they will be wondering and perhaps trying to capitalise on the idea that, well, Mrs May, who had personality, but also, as James points out, policy differences with Donald Trump, she's going. If the next leader is indeed Boris Johnson, will he then align Britain much more closely with the Trump administration? My guess is he would, because he'd almost be strategically compelled to. Because if he went for a hard deal or a no-deal Brexit with the European Union, he would have almost to balance that, get much closer to Washington. So I think some of those policy differences over Iran, maybe even over climate, over the Middle East peace process, would begin to be erased as London once again moved closer to Washington. And I think because Boris Johnson and a lot of the Tory party are very historically minded, they see that as the natural alliance. This kind of D-Day memory is something that they think, well, this is where Britain should be. And even though we may feel uncomfortable with Trump in many respects... Essentially, that's Britain's core alliance. And of course, James, this is the big question. 
can he resist saying something about the Conservative Party leadership contest that he was captured on camera on Thursday making some comments where he sort of said, I like Nigel Farage, I like Boris Johnson, they're friends, but I'm not going to get involved. But if we remember last time Mr Trump came to the UK, he got very involved and said Theresa May had messed up Brexit, she wasn't taking the opportunity. So although he's been quite restrained now and not getting involved in the UK's domestic situation, as Gideon said, it does feel as if he's going to come and will end up saying something about who should be the next Prime Minister. And it's obviously he's going to want a Brexiter, somebody who can do that trade deal with the US. Well, it's impossible to predict what Trump will say. And I'm sure that at press conferences, he will come under pressure to say that. Is it going to make a whole load of difference in the Conservative leadership contest if he suddenly comes out and says something very good about Boris Johnson? It might do, but I don't think it will be decisive. I certainly don't think he'll endear himself to large parts of the non-Brexit voting British public if he aligns himself with Nigel Farage. So we'll have to wait and see. He is a mercurial figure and he may say that sort of thing. But I think one thing he probably ought to take on board is that now that Mrs May has said she's going, we're going to enter a period of appreciation in the UK of what she tried to do. I think most people accept she failed, that she made a lot of strategic mistakes. But there's also an acknowledgement that she was given an extraordinarily difficult hand, I think, by the wider public. So I think if he does anything to sort of say, well, I could have done it better or it could have been better, done better by someone else, he really isn't going to endear himself to anybody. Yeah. And I think it's, it's worth remembering also that presidential interventions in UK politics are not unknown, but they also have a habit of backfiring. So if you remember... Just before the Brexit referendum, Barack Obama was here, was encouraged pretty clearly by the Cameron government to say that a trade deal with America would not be easy to make, that Britain would be, as he put it, at the back of the queue, telltale Britishism there, which suggests somebody might have written it for him, but whatever. It didn't work. It, if anything, it appeared to rile up the Brexit vote. So whatever Mr. Trump says may have an unintended effects as well as intended effects. Yes, I do wonder whether Boris Johnson would want that endorsement and whether it would help him, particularly if he has to go into a general election, because if Mr Trump says, oh, well, Boris is the kind of guy I can do a deal with, that might help. But if he says, Boris is my kind of guy, we're good friends and that kind of thing, I'm not sure that will particularly work because, of course, there are going to be huge protests for this visit. The whole of central London yeah. is essentially going to be shut down next. The central London that Boris was until recently mayor of and claimed to be in tune with. Indeed, so it's going to be a very tricky diplomatic visit to navigate. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you to Robert, Miranda, Gideon and James for joining us. If you've liked what you've heard and would like to see more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. 
Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.